Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray and with me on the Squadcast here recording is Dr. Robert Spies. We are going to interview a special guest tonight with some really interesting stuff about marine biology. Uh, this program is being recorded, so we won't be able to take your calls, unfortunately, but I think you'll find a lot of interesting information in here. Bob, do you want to introduce tonight's guest? Yeah, I'm very pleased to have uh, an old colleague, Dr. Greg Callier. He's a uh, professor emeritus at the, from the Moss Landing Marine Lab. He was associated with uh, the Cal State University System and also with the Pacific Shark Research Center. He was the uh, director emeritus, which is also in Moss Landing. And uh, Greg has spent the last, he's spent about 50 years at Moss Landing Marine Lab. In the last 30 years, he's been really concentrating more on on sharks and also has done a lot of really interesting work on aging of uh, various kinds of fishes using some pretty sophisticated techniques. So, Greg, uh, welcome to the program. We're really happy to have you on. We've been hoping to get you for a while. So thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, Bob, for inviting me. You and Tim are gracious hosts. Yeah, yeah. And so um, we usually asked our, our guests to talk a little bit about how they got into uh, you know, being an ecologist and, you know, what did it start early in life? They've got some interesting uh, kind of tidbits of information you can pass along and maybe some encouragement to some of the younger people that might be interested in uh, becoming ecologists. Okay, well, I, I started in Santa Monica, was born and raised there, and as a, a young child, I had leg Perthes disease, which means I couldn't walk or move very much. But by the time I recovered from that at the age of 12, I spent almost all my hours on the ocean or in the ocean. I spent a lot of time surfing and snorkeling and spent a lot of my time going to the beach in Santa Monica. Um, because of that connection with the ocean, I absolutely fell in love with it early in life. And I decided to go north about two and a half hours to Santa Barbara. And I went to UC Santa Barbara starting in 1961 finished my, my BA there, and then I got into a deep sea fish ecology program under Dr. Al Ebling and worked with him or for him until I graduated in 1972. I worked on deep sea fish ecology, their vertical migration and feeding habits. And I got back from a vacation just after finishing and I saw a mimeographed um, sheet advertising a position at Moss Landing Marine Laboratories for an ichthyologist. I immediately called and uh, asked to, to apply. I was uh, about ready to go play beach volleyball at noon when I get a knock on the door by this Frenchman, Dr. Robert Arnal, who was the acting director of Moss Landing Marine Laboratories. He caught me with my shorts on, a volleyball in my hand, and interviewed me for three hours. It was wonderful, but I missed the volleyball. <laughs> I was asked to come up and give a seminar the following Friday. I drove from Santa Barbara to Moss Landing in the middle of Monterey Bay on a Friday with a friend of mine who was also a grad student there at Santa Barbara. Gave my seminar, met everybody, came back, and by Monday morning I was offered the job. It was one of these blissful situations that just don't happen to happen very often. No, yeah, that that never happens. Wow, what a story. So I was very lucky. I got thrown into teaching quite early in life, but I had 
taught a lot as a, a grad student at Santa Barbara, as a teaching assistant, and actually helped a couple of professors give some of their lectures on plankton and fish ecology. So I had a good start. I can attest that that was a tough time to get a job because I got a, I got uh, my advanced degree out of USC uh, back in 69, 70. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like, seemed like two years before there were plenty of jobs to go around for graduates. And all of a sudden there were like 150 people applying for every job. So uh, you must have, you must have impressed them at Moss Landing. Well, the main thing that they liked, I think, and uh, most of them are no longer there, they're retired, was that I was very diverse. I had background in estuarine fishes, kelp bed fishes, sandy beach fishes, rocky intertidal fishes, but mainly deep sea fishes. And all of those habitats are extremely abundant in Monterey Bay. From the lab, you can take a skiff almost, a whaler at least, and be at the head of the Monterey Submarine Canyon within minutes, maybe an hour to a deep water area. So it was very attractive to them to have someone like me be able to teach marine ecology and fish ecology, ichthyology, um, and cover all those fishes associated with all those various habitats. Yeah. Yeah, well, work. that's very attractive to me because uh, we have a similar situation here. We do. Uh, yeah, it'll be great to hear about some of these, some of the, your work because uh, we have a similar setting up here with a deep marine canyon that's easily reached with an hour less than an hour's boat ride that's right and at that time at, well, over the last years or so we've had three research vessels all capable of taking a class size of maybe 16 to 18 students out for the day trawling and nowadays dropping submarine uh, submersible cameras to look at the habitats right off our shore so it's an experience that not, not many students in marine ecology get that's that easy from an institution. Yeah. Well, you had a hell of a great uh, major professor at UC Santa Barbara, Al Lebling. A few of us were lucky to, to know him. He was a great guy and a very knowledgeable guy about kelp bed ecology and fish ecology in general and a uh, hell of a human being. So, yeah. I appreciate that, Bob. I'm presently writing a, an obituary slash memorial for Al Ebling to be published in the journal Ichthyology and Herpetology with a former grad student of his, Dick Bray, who started the work on kelp bed fishes with Al. And then Dan Reed, who was actually a Moss Landing Phycology um, grad student and then got his PhD at UC Santa Barbara with Al and his colleague, Mike Nuschel, who was a kelp bed authority around the world. They both were trained at Scripps with some other luminaries like Wheeler North, Jay Quast, and other very famous people at that time. Yeah. It's really been fun writing that. And we're just yeah. about finished with the manuscript. Yeah, kind of touching on uh, the history of uh, marine science through the scientists that have participated here along the coast for the last 50 to 70 years. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's hear a little so, about some uh, of the research you've done. Yeah. 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 Well, when I first got to Moss Landing, I decided to focus on deep sea fishes because it was natural. And um, we went out and did a project that was funded by Sea Grant <clears throat> using traps to capture sablefish or black cod. It was a fishery that was just starting. Now it's one of the top, top 10 in biomass caught on the, along the coast. And we did tagging, tracking, 
age and growth and feeding habits of sablefish. About the same time, I had two or three grad students very interested in estuarine fishes. So we started focusing also on Elkhorn Slough, the natural coastal embayment. Some would call it an estuary, but not a classic estuary with a river coming from one, one end. And we studied the fish ecology there. The invertebrates were covered by Jim Nybach and our invertebrate zoologist and the phycology or algae and plants were studied by Mike Foster and his students. We did about five years of research there and that was fun. I had other students getting involved with kelp bed fishes and they're all faculty at various places um, now, which is a phenomenal achievement I think for them to do. And because of my interest in deep sea and the life history of fishes, I started probably in the mid 70s, late 70s, looking at ear bones or otoliths and counting growth zones in sections or whole ones, depending on the species, to try to figure out how old they got, how fast they grew, how early in life they matured, and how that related to management of fisheries for those who had fisheries focused on them. Um, that resulted in a technique developed by several students, the main one being Alan Andrews, who got his PhD at Grahamstown in South Africa and worked in Hawaii and now is in Sweden, looking at growth zones in otoliths, ear bones, and also using radiometric, which is something I'll define in a second, and bomb radiocarbon ways of validating the growth zones. Radiometric mainly focused on the ratio between lead 210 and radium 226. Radium 226 decays into lead 210 at a constant rate. And you can take a zone in an ear bone and look at the ratio of lead and radium and figure out about how old it was and superimpose that on a curve of what we think the growth curve for that species was. He started doing that for his masters on rat tails, grenadiers, a deep water fish that gets to be about 60 years old. And then we focused on at least a dozen species of rockfish, rockfishes, plural, and thorny heads. And some of those were aged and validated up to over 120 years. That would be the yellow eye rockfish. So it's a tool that really allows one to figure out how these minute and numerous growth zones really do tell the life history of the age of fishes. Um, another technique was one that we developed with the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, Bob, actually, where we looked at bomb radiocarbon from the bomb blasts in the 60s, mainly in Polynesia, where there was an atmospheric source of bomb radiocarbon, carbon-14, that went through the phytoplankton, picked up, and then anything that ate the phytoplankton or ate would ate the phytoplankton would incorporate that into a calcified structure that didn't change over time, like the ear bones of fishes, otoliths. And as it turns out, that's become a very valuable tool and has helped us age a lot of things. In, in one case, with the yellow eye and also with the canary rockfishes, we've used those two techniques simultaneously to validate long-lived ages of those species. And the bomb radiocarbon and the radiometric ratios tell us virtually the same story in both cases. That's amazing. Go ahead. 
I'm just going to say it's amazing uh, what you can tell by looking at calcified structures because I know in the early 70s I was working with Vic Noshkin when I was at Lawrence Limor Laboratory and we were out in the Pacific Atolls and taking uh, coral heads and slicing the coral heads and then putting them on a piece of film and developing them for a month or two and then we could see the bands so uh, we knew the bands were the most intense bands, or I forget the dates, but in the 60s or 50s or 60s somewhere. And then you could look at how much growth there was and, and actually calculate uh, how fast the radionuclides are being flushed out of the lagoon. And um, so this, and you can tell a lot, right, from, from, from fish otoliths. Yes, pretty much the same idea, except the fish are mobile yeah. and the corals yeah. are not. But yeah, right. uh, Alan actually did a couple papers on deep sea corals from here before he left and used the radiometric age validation technique on those as well. You can't use the bomb radiocarbon because it doesn't go that deep in the water. It doesn't stay. Mm -hmm. But anything calcified will do it. So we then tried the techniques on tarpon, and that got us up to 60 years old for the tarpon in the Atlantic. And that was with a colleague, Dave Secor. We've tried it with sturgeons. It didn't work. We've tried it with angel sharks. Their growth zones don't seem to be laid down on an annual basis. So those were quote unquote failures. And my poor students who discovered that were all crying about their thesis being a failure. But I said, no, 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 publish it because at least we'll know in the future people will know that that technique is not the one to use. Maybe they could look for other techniques of figuring out how old and how fast they grew. Um, yeah, I'm, that that always reminds me of the famous quote attributed to Edison, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, Edison, uh, at one point, someone asked him, an impertinent re reporter asked him, you know, don't you get frustrated with all these failures? And he said, I haven't failed. I've just successfully found 10,000 ways that don't work. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And yeah, both yeah. of these students that were worried about this ended up getting their master's degrees publishing and publishing on negative results and went on to get PhDs. One, and both of them are still working on age and growth, both of sharks and rays and uh, bony fishes. So it's a success story. Yeah, science in science, you learn a lot more from the failures than you do from successful experiments, actually. That's right. Well, since this, so, all, this technique worked with bony fishes and their ear bones, um, we thought it might work with sharks and rays. In the late 70s, I had students who were studying elasmobranchs, sharks and rays and chimeras, but mostly sharks and rays that lived in Elkhorn Slough, and they had a derby. And because the shark derby brought in specimens, mostly dead sharks, we could take parts from them. So we took vertebrae, we took um, other, not bony, but cartilaginous structures like fin rays, spines, and started looking for growth zones in them. This was in the mid-70s. Um, they stopped the shark derbies in the late 70s, early 80s, because they decided it wasn't really a good idea to be killing this many sharks. So we started a technique where we got somebody who was relatively wealthy to donate a few thousand dollars. And we had them measure, tag, and release all sharks and rays that they caught. And they could bring in the measurement after it was ver verified by one of my students in a Boston whaler and still enter the derby. So we got a lot of information that was useful from that perspective. 
But we started thinking about growth zones in vertebrae. At that time, there were probably six papers published, aging sharks and rays, and it was all vertebrae. In one case, it was the spine of the spiny dogfish. So I had students that did that uh, approach to estimate growth of the most common commercially captured sharks and rays, angel sharks, leopard sharks, smooth hounds, uh, makos, threshers, blue sharks, and others. We ended up looking at about 30 species total over the time. But we had no way of validating except to tag and release and recapture. Tagging and release and recapture is very time consuming and very expensive. We were lucky to work with a gal at Tiburon and the National Marine Fisheries Service, Sue Smith, who had tagged over a thousand leopard sharks and put tags on them and was getting returns. And that was our first example of using tag recapture as a basis. Once the fish is caught again the second time, it's collected and it's sacrificed. And we got the vertebrae out of those and we validated where the tetracycline that we injected it with when it was tagged um, was in terms of the growth zones in the vertebrae. And we used that as our first validation. It worked and we published several papers on that. Same thing was true for angel sharks, but the growth zones did not help. We used tag recapture instead. And then we started thinking about the radiometric and the bomb radiocarbon use to validate growth zones. And that's when I got really involved in shark and ray biology. And we published papers on the white shark, several of them, papers on the mako and thresher using tag recapture. And one thing led to another. I wrote book chapters on aging and, uh, and growth studies of sharks and rays. And um, that's how I, I guess, got relatively well-known because I was asked to write book chapters on the subject. And um, I developed a whole lot of friendships among colleagues in Taiwan, Japan, China, Mexico, South America. It allowed me to travel to a lot of fun places and meet some really great people. All right. Let's just maybe take a minute and explain to people why is it so important? Why, is, why was this question uh, such a critical thing to, to understand? Uh, why do we need to know how old these fish are? That's a good question. Um, if you were fishing guppies, it would be no problem because they live probably five years old and reproduce in their first life and lay down five growth zones and die. So they're pretty easy to handle. You can take a lot of them, but they replenish themselves quickly. You take long-lived organisms like whales and dolphins, which I understand you've heard of, heard about from Jim Harvey in previous broadcasts, and their, their growth is slow. They sometimes get into the multiple teens and up to a 100 years old. And in that case, they grow slowly, and if you knock them off real early in life, they don't get to be old enough to reproduce. And if they can't reproduce, the populations can't withhold fishing mortality as well as natural mortality. So we wanted to know for the sharks and rays, are they more like guppies, which is kind of a silly thing to say, but we knew that, um, or whales and dolphins, which grow a long time. And it turns out many species of sharks and rays live a long time, sometimes in the in the hundred year old range. So it's a fishery management tool. 
so they're 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 they reproduce slowly too right generally they reproduce slowly they don't yeah they don't have too many offspring bob if, if that's what you mean yeah. um yeah. sharks and rays are, are live bearers in most cases or egg layers but in both cases they don't have a lot of embryos sharks that are live bearers have one five at the most maybe i think in one case a hundred but mostly 50 offspring at a birth and they don't reproduce every year they reproduce every couple years or so depending on the species skates and rays often are egg layers they get fertilized the female develops the fertilized egg and, and lays a shell around it and exudes that into the ocean and that takes six months to a year to hatch so they're not the word we use is fecund they're not really fecund. They don't put out a lot of offspring, either in terms of number per birth or frequency after maturity. Listeners, if you just joined us, uh, we're talking to Greg Callier, uh, Professor Emeritus in Lost Lining Marine Lab. He spent a good part of his career studying sharks and fishes in general. And we're having a fascinating conversation about uh, shark biology and the age of sharks and how we determine how old they are and so forth so thanks for joining us so it becomes important if you're going to manage a species that's being harvested to know a lot about its life history in terms of how long it lives and how fast it reproduces, so you, you don't overfish it it's absolutely true and that, that led me after doing all the age and growth work to get involved with demography which is a life history table analysis of a population where you look at the ages, how common they are, how they die off, and how many offspring they have per age class. And when you do that, you come up with an estimate of what's called little r, which is in population biology terms called the intrinsic rate of increase of the population. And if it's a big number, you're good. If it's a little number, you're not in such good shape. Um, r sub o is the net reproductive rate. And if you have an r sub o, that is less than one, that means they don't replace themselves in a lifetime. If it's over one, especially if it's a long distance over one, like 1.5 or two or three, that means they reproduce much faster in life and can repopulate their populations um, right. uh, slower. Right. Yeah, the R is real, I, I, I said that wrong, it's faster. The higher they are, the faster they, they grow to reproductive size. And their demography tells you that. Very valuable and there, tool. There's, and there's a kind of a general relationship. The longer-lived species tend to have lower Rs. That's absolutely true. Then they don't get they don't get as old as they're going to get very fast. Right. right. And they tend to delay reproduction until they're later in life. In most cases, that's true. and I'll, We haven't found that in every case, but the majority of the species we've looked at, um, both rockfishes and sharks and rays, have shown that that trait. So management and conservation, as I understand it, are pretty big deals in, with sharks because they have been fished pretty hard in certain places for certain species. That's that true. But that's true, Bob, um, for several reasons. In some cases, like with thresher sharks, mako sharks, even white sharks in the old days, they were fished heavily by humans, not necessarily for the flesh with the white shark, just because of nuisance, but the makos and thresher sharks were, were 
caught for food. But there's also a huge mortality of sharks as bycatch for other fisheries. The main one we worked on was the ones that are pelagic open ocean and the surface waters that are caught by mistake in gill nuts or long lines set for more valuable fishes like tuna and um, billfishes and things like that. Yeah, I remember in the, I think it was the 80s, early 90s, there was a, almost a mania for thresher shark and, you know, the grocery stores had it all, it was always available and then it kind of just disappeared from the market. That's actually true. That's exactly what we experienced. I could catch, I could buy Mako and thresher sharks in the market just down the street from my house in Monterey. And that was when we were studying their life histories. We predicted in our papers it wasn't going to last very long. The Japanese ichthyologists studying the same species over there predicted the same thing a little slower, but then, you know, they depend more on seafood than we did then. And it, as it turns out, those species have been knocked down pretty heavily. Hmm. Yeah, I've always, I've always maintained in a kind of idealistic way that, that we should, uh, these species get exploited before we exploit them. So heavily, we should understand about its life history, reproductive rate, and and all these different factors, and maybe even have a some kind of population model that we can follow. But that seems to never happen. It's, it's like the species get exploited until it's there's not many of it left, and people start worrying about it. Then they start spending more and more money on the science as the as the number of of individuals get, decreases, and we can, we seem to have it backwards. That's absolutely true. That one of the reasons for that, though, is that the specimens you need to do age and growth studies and reproductive studies are caught by the fisheries. So unless you have a fishery providing you specimens, you're stuck. I mean, going out and catching pelagic species like thresher sharks and mako sharks, even white sharks, is extremely time-consuming, very expensive. And so that's where you get the data. Now, though, more and more people are studying these animals. And you can generalize before you set fishery management policies to be conservative in the take you allow. If you think that species A is, that is unknown, life history is unknown, is similar to species B and C, whose life history is known. So we're learning more about that. There's a, an organization called the IUCN, the International mm -hmm. Union for the Conservation of Nature, I've been involved in several workshops where we've done that kind of thing. We take what we know from the literature and we rank each species of shark and ray in this case for their vulnerability and their status. So the IUCN produces what's called a red list, which is then used by the Monterey Bay Aquarium, for example, in their seafood watch to propose to the public and to the fisheries to be conservative, taking those species or not to take them at all or eat them at all. So as we know more, I think that problem is getting to be less and less. But the pressure on the fisheries is increasing all the time, it seems like. And, well, so is the human population. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and people are eating more seafood. So there's a lot yeah. more pressure. There are more fishermen in the, um, out there. Um, less of the fewer of them are using really uh, destructive techniques like bottom trawls, which drag the bottom and take many mm -hmm. of the bottom fish. 
and don't always take the target fish, but kill them all. And, and hook and line and gill nets. They're being used less and less and more um, conservatively and more far, farther offshore. So I think their damage, the damage being caused is less. But it's all relative. Yeah. It's still high. Yeah, yeah last, we... week, last week there was a big article in the New York Times about uh, China's fishing off the coast of South America. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was uh, pretty eye-opening. They, they had to show a map of all the tracks of Chinese vessels that were in the area over the last, I don't know, couple of months or something. And it was, it was pretty impressive. It's, a, it's amazing where these ships can go. And it comes from countries where they need the food, Japan, China, Korea, right. all the shark fisheries in the Gulf of California got fairly decimated in the late seventies by large trawling um, fisheries, you know, vessels from all over the world. It came into Mexican waters where there's very little regulation and knocked down all the large sharks and most of the females, even if they were pregnant. We did a two-year study in on the coast, both coasts of Baja, looking at the artisanal fisheries for sharks and rays and published that a few years ago. It was a pretty, pretty sad story there. Is, are there any generalizations you can make about recovery of those species that were knocked down so hard? Not yet. But the techniques we use to interview fishermen in the artisanal fisheries in Baja California and the, the west coast of Mexico are now being used by Mexican scientists, all of whom we've known over the years, and they're repeating those studies. So ultimately, there will be long-term studies of these the catches of these fisheries over time, and we'll be able to know more. But the first indication is size and the sizes of the majority of species has not started coming up yet. Yeah, that's common to a bunch of fisheries, right? You, you your first uh, your first hint that you're doing it wrong is you, you just can't catch big fish anymore. I had a grad student who worked in China on the shore and he brought trawls back there to sample the fishes. And you'd be amazed at the sizes of the fishes in the Yellow Sea. They were tiny. I mean, they were down to six to eight maybe 10 inches at the max and there mm. were still fisheries for them and a lot of the species yeah. that were that he found live to be longer and larger if unfished so that mm -hmm. was a good story i mean a sad, there's a, sad story there's also, also yeah. apparently a genetic effect as i understand it. So you start you start harvesting the large fish and then what happens is the smaller ones reproduce and then you you actually end up having much smaller fish in their population after a while and it becomes a kind of genetically fixed as i understand yeah i think you're right i don't know much yeah. about genetics but i've heard the same thing yeah. um yeah. that they're the structure of the population genetically changes along with the size of the population uh-huh yeah interesting yeah because you, you're you would think that if you just stopped keeping the big fish then and let them grow old enough they'd get to be as big as they used to be, but that's not always the case. Well, it hasn't been tested very often, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but even in uh, fisheries like, you know, where we are, there's the rockfish and especially the lingcod. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, the lingcod fishery is pretty robust. There's a lot of lingcod out there. There's no shortage whatsoever, uh, but they're not as big as they used to be. Yeah, that's size selective predation by the fishermen. They're taking the big ones, and it's knocking the size down. 
But remember, lingcod are bony fishes, and they're teleosts, or higher bony fishes, and they're egg layers. So they, they're laying clumps of eggs that are fertilized. So they're still putting out sometimes millions of eggs that aren't touched by humans yet until they grow up to be the size that they can be caught. Same is true for cabazon and fish like that. So the reproductive mode makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because the lingcod, uh, my understanding is they live to be about maybe 20 years old. And uh, the older ones, as you say, can have upwards of half a million eggs. Yes, that's true. I think they live live longer than that, Tim. Do they? But I can't find, in my brain up here, I can't remember the paper. Yeah, yeah. That might be the average maturity around here. Maybe uh, that's it. Maybe that's it. I, I think I, uh, we've had some conversations before with uh, Dr. Milton Love, who I'm sure you know. Well, I, I was the TA in the ichthyology class that he took when he was an undergraduate. Yes, I know him. <laughs> we published books that, together. <laughs> that must have been interesting. He's a character. He's a lot of fun to be around. Oh, yeah. I knew him when I was doing research with Santa Barbara on the petroleum seeps down there. Yeah. yeah. Interesting guy. Yeah. yeah, he's got a great sense of humor. He's, he's still a great there. interview, I'll tell you. He's still uh, there, so and he was one of Al Leveling students as well. <laughs> when we talked to him, he's, you know, he brought up the idea that we're kind of regulating a lot of these fisheries the wrong way. We have a minimum size limit when we really ought to impose a maximum size limit and leave the, the larger, older fish to do most of the reproduction. Is that the case? That's specifically, he's talking about rockfish. Uh, and I think that's probably the case for lingcod. I always turn them loose if they're, if they're, I, I have a maximum size limit that for myself, but, uh, and a lot of the other fishermen I go out with think I'm crazy for turning a big lingcod loose. But how many other fish are like that, where the larger and older they get, the more reproductively successful they, they I think are. the majority are like for, that. Are they? I do. Yeah. yeah, I know in rockfish it's that way, to the point that rockfish get up to 80, 100 years old, depending on the species, and they're still reproducing. There's no senescence that anybody has seen and really documented very well. Um, one, of the yeah, fishes, the relation- one of the fishes that I think has been managed the way you're talking about, Tim, is the white the white sturgeon. Uh-huh. And I think that there is a after a certain size, yeah. they don't want you to keep them. Right, they have a what they call a slot limit. Exactly, both a minimum and a maximum size. That's right, yeah. and that's the one species I know about. I I would like to see that for lingcod. Probably not a bad idea, but here the problem is the same as that Bob talked about. Until there's a problem, we don't really know. Right, and so yeah. far there's yeah. no problem with lingcod. They're all sport fishery. Right. So on the sharks, yeah. Uh, now they their reproductive rate doesn't really vary that much with age does it i mean the fishes that we're talking about the bony fishes the the older and larger and fattier they get the more they reproduce right and as you say an interesting feature is there's no sign of senescence they they just reproduce more and more and more the older they get that's true the evidence the evidence is that the quality of the eggs and what can be fertilized and and raised through hatching actually increases as they get older because they can put more reserves into the eggs. I've seen a couple papers along those lines. I think that's yeah. true for rockfish. I don't know about, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know about um, sharks and rays, but I do know that 
some of the species we've looked at, we've done some reproductive studies, and the older they get, the more offspring they can have, but it's it's not magnitudes more because they're live bearers. That means there's only so much room inside mom uh-huh. to have the babies. So it yeah. may go from five to 10, 10 to 20, depending on the species. The larger the female, the more they can have, but they don't have them very frequently. So it's it's a wash there. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that with these larger sharks, like the white sharks, threshers and makos and you know, what is their life history? And, and uh, there's some weird things that happen when, when they're carrying live young. <laughs> well, not a, whole lot is, not a whole lot is known about the white shark. Malcolm Francis discovered a pregnant one, and I think there were five offspring that were aborted from it off New Zealand. And I, I don't know for sure how many more pregnant, female white sharks have been taken and what we know their fecundity might be. Huh. But we do know that there are more and more adults around. And we think the reason for that is, this is white sharks, is that their prey is extremely abundant. It's all protected by the Marine Mammal Protection Act that was in, initiated in 1972. So the things that they like to eat when they're bigger, harbor seals, other pinnipeds, uh, sea lions, elephant seals, especially the medium-sized ones, are extremely abundant for them. So there's no nothing limiting the white shark population. Humans are protecting them. They're not fishing for them anymore. They might Some rogue might go out and kill one just because he doesn't like it, but it's not common. And so their, their mortality and reproduction um, is not extremely well known. But we do know from tagging, that white sharks, for example, move a, a long ways. They, they're mostly pupped in Southern California. And now because of the warmer temperatures of the ocean, some of them have come up north and now there's a big population of them. I don't know if you'd call it a population. There's a group of them, mostly juveniles, uh, young sub-adults, and now a couple that were attacking human swimmers that are off Capitola and in Monterey Bay. Their numbers have increased. Don't know if it's fecundity or the, the reproduction of them because we virtually don't know anything about their reproduction. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there was one, uh, a friend of mine who's a kayak fisherman, uh, had a, a shark that he estimated at 16 feet, came up underneath his kayak and bumped it. Wow, that's big. And then followed him as he paddled backward for headed for shallow water. <laughs> It it followed his kayak and made eye contact with him. He said he'll never forget the, the that eye to eye look. I don't doubt it. He's the shark is trying to figure out what that organism is. Is it edible or not? And if he mm-hmm. sees a kayak or a surfboard with arms dangling over it, the torso doesn't look right, but the dangling arms do. You know, in the kayak's case, it's just dangling um, oars, right? So the shark probably just thought it wasn't worth messing with. But the one that that attacked Steve Bramer in Lover's Point just about, what, four months ago? He was swimming. He he is a very athletic man. But he was swimming alone outside kelp and in areas that used to have kelp. 
that no longer do because of urchin barrens being yeah. produced, we think, by their predatory star starfish diminishing and dying off. And the kelp has uh, died off. Kelp normally is thought of as a protective mechanism for swimmers and surfers. So he was doing everything wrong or the shark was <laughs> in the right place at the right time. Although the white sharks here, they may attack a lot of things like sea otters, but they don't usually take them. They, don't, they might not even kill them, but they certainly don't swallow them. So it's not something they really want to eat. So they're a, they're a curious group. And the surfing, swimming humans are taking a chance just being in their territory. Yeah. Well, I told my buddy that he didn't have to worry because he's long and skinny and has very low body fat. <laughs> and I said that a white shark would find him unpalatable. And that was not much comfort because he said, you know, <laughs> the way the shark would find that out would still be very unpleasant. So, yeah, the exploratory bite would tell it. Yeah. But the exploratory yeah. bite could get part of him too. And that's what, yeah, happened, and with, that, that's what happened with Steve. He was swimming and the shark hit him just where he would, the shark would hit a sea lion or a harbor seal right in the uh, middle. So he got the top of the, the, the both legs and part of the abdomen and mm. then released him. And Steve mm. whacked at him a couple of times and hit him with his um, feet. So it did distract him. And then about a month later, a kayaker got attacked. The board got hit. The, the kayaker fell off, got knocked off the board as well as his little dog. And they both scrambled onto the board as fast as possible and scrambled in. But you could see the tooth marks on that on that um, kayak, not kayak in this case, um, stand-up paddleboard. Oh, paddleboard. Yeah, and it was pretty big. The estimates of those two white sharks here in Monterey, Lover's Point, are between 13 and 15 feet based on the tooth marks. So they are that large in the bay now. Oh, yeah. The largest white shark is estimated at 21 feet. It was taken probably 100 years ago in Cuba. Nothing since then has been taken close to that size. We did an age and growth studies of white sharks in God in the 70s. And we had 21 samples from museums. <clears throat> and the biggest one we had was 18 feet. So I think most of the sharks don't get much over 20. But the problem is, when we did our age and growth study, we estimated their longevity to be maybe 35 years old. And since then, a grad student at Woods Hole, who's finished her thesis now, looked at um, bomb radiocarbon estimates from the white shark vertebrae up there. And she's convinced they get up to 100 years old. Uh -huh. So if that's true, then they probably get much bigger than we know they get because we just never see them or can catch them. Right. Hopefully nobody will be attacked by one that big. <laughs> I, I saw a movie that kind of gave me the impression that big white sharks are extremely difficult to catch. But that might not have been a scientifically accurate movie. That wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> and grad students working with Barbara Block at Hopkins Marine Station started about 20 years ago putting tags that measured time and depth on white sharks off the Farallon Islands. And Andre Bustani, who got his PhD under her at, at Hopkins Stanford, um, published his first paper, I think it was in Science, 
a good good journal showing that some of these larger white sharks move. I wouldn't call it migrate, although they do it every year now. So maybe it is migration to Hawaii. And when they go to Hawaii, the bigger ones, they have to go deeper because the water and the surface is warmer. And white sharks have capillary bed that keeps their lateral musculature relatively warm, not, not homeothermal like we are, but close. And so they need to, to swim well. They need to contract and expand their muscles, keep their lateral muscles warm. And if they're in the surface water on the way to Hawaii, the water's considerably warmer and they probably would, quote, unquote, burn up. I don't know if that's the right term. Oh, so it's too warm. So they it's go like deep. They go deep and by the, the time they're off Hawaii, they're 700 meters of water in wow. cold water. And that's I understood been, from, been repeated over and over again now with tags. I understand from Barbara's uh, tagging work that there's a, some sort of a place between here and Hawaii where the sharks seem to hang out for a while. And I guess she's got some of these uh, tags that release and go to the surface and then transmit the data. Yes, she does. Yeah. And they do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some people call it SOFA. And I don't know what that stands for. Offshore feeding area. So I don't know what the S is. Yeah. Shark yeah. offshore feeding area. And some yeah. people yeah. call it the cafe. And it's Hawaii halfway between here in Hawaii. And it's around 600 meters, 500 meters, I believe. And nobody really knows why. They're probably not feeding there. There's probably not much for them to eat. Could be that they're mating. Who knows? Nobody's ever seen any of this. Yeah. So it's still there, and they've gone out on large vessels to try to capture them while they're there and see what they're doing, but it hasn't been successful. Aside from fur seals, yeah. I couldn't imagine there's a lot of marine mammals out there. I don't know. Not out there. No, not that no, deep either. No. It's yeah. I mean, open ocean. There's no uh, no subsurface structure, no upwelling. No Exactly. Convergent no. current. Yeah, the meatiest yeah. thing would be a tuna, or maybe a dolphin fish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not but a dolphin. they'd be scattered over thousands of square kilometers of ocean. It'd be hard to find. I agree. We're talking to Greg Callier, a professor emeritus at Mosslandy Marine Lab, and we're having a fascinating conversation about uh, shark biology and the age of sharks and how we determine how old they are and so forth. So, if you if you spent much time studying. Uh, skates and rays and some of the uh, estuaries. We, I remember I did a master's degree at uh, Dillon Beach and uh, in Tomales Bay, and there seemed to be a lot of skates there. There was a guy named Tappan Banerjee that did kind of a way back when in mid-60s. I've, I've heard the name. Heard survey, of, survey of the fishes of Tomales Bay. And I, I, my recollection is they had a lot of Scott, uh I don't know how many species, but he came across a lot when he was doing beach sanding. I would think it would be mostly rays, unless yeah, you're at the yeah. mouth of Tamales Bay, where yeah. skates are usually offshore. Yeah. And they're real pointy. And the ones that you'd see there that would really be abundant would be the bat ray, Myliobatus yeah. californicus. Yeah. And the leopard shark is there, too. And people from Davis have studied that. Um, Do they have any electric? Any electric rays up here? I know that uh, Dick Bray used to <laughs> just to, used to fool around with them with <laughs> with photographing them and using their electric current to to complete the circuit and flash his bulb. <laughs> yeah, he published a paper. Water. He published a paper yeah. in Science called "The Night Shocker." Yeah, right. <laughs> and I gave him the title just to take credit for that. 
<laughs> the work. I thought it was pretty imaginative to get the get the Ray to take his own picture with his electric yeah. car. <laughs> well, he's talking That's about that a little bit in the paper that we're writing about Al Eveling, because that was when oh, Dick yeah. was a grad student at Santa Barbara. Yeah, yeah. But that was the electric Ray, and I had a student, uh, Julie Near, who worked on electric Ray um, in at Moss Landing for her master's degree. But most of the specimens came from Southern California. We catch them occasionally up here, but not often. Hmm. And um, as far as skates are concerned, we studied a lot of skate ecology since we started the Pacific Shark Research Center in the early 2000s. Um, Dave Ebert has taken that over now since I retired. And we've had probably together between us a dozen students studying at least a dozen species of skate mainly oh, their cool. feeding habits and also some of their age and growth. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most yeah. of that's been published and I can yeah. always send, send people reprints if they want them. But they're uh, pretty much, uh, pretty much benthic feeders like the rays. They're all benthic feeders. Yeah. None of the skates live off the bottom very much and yeah. they're eating probably polychaetes and clams and mussels, whatever they can find down there. Some benthic fishes. Another fisherman friend of mine has caught the same he thinks the same skate in his uh, in crab rings. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, several times. Huh. There's one little isolated sandy patch in a little bay south of here, and uh, and he fishes Dungeness crab there in the season. <laughs> yeah. Over over a period of thirty plus years, uh, he's caught a a skate in this trap several times and he thinks it's the same fish because it's bigger every single time too bad he can't find somebody to give him a tag <laughs> yeah well yeah, we probably yeah. could maybe yeah put us in touch with the right person we'll see if we can you know, it, by now it might be a pretty old fish it's uh it's pretty big he said right but you know that's that, that tells me something that i should have mentioned a long time ago we learn a lot just from sampling what fishermen catch fishermen in general know way more than we'll ever know about what's really going on with some of these species offshore. And the reason is they're out there every day and they yeah. see what they see. Some of them don't report it. Others do. And the ones who do help us a great deal. So your friend might be one of those really good ones. <laughs> yeah. He has a scientific mind, actually. He's not a scientist, but he's a keen observer for sure. And a lot of, you're right. A lot of fishermen are extremely keen observers. They are. Yeah, they're motivated to learn. <laughs> I agree. Well, we're, uh, we've got about, I think, maybe 10 minutes left in the show. Uh, we're having a fascinating discussion and uh, picking up a, kind of a wide-ranging discussion of a lot of different fish and topics. Um, I wonder if we want to come circle back to uh some of the work that you've done with the the sharks and the rays and the and aging them and what's uh the current state of the science and where where are scientists going at this point with that research um yeah there's quite a few, several avenues of research that are new and different one of them is to use stable isotopes in either the vertebral rings or in, in the case of fish ear bones in their rings Stable isotopes tell you something about the distance offshore and the depth at which these organisms were living at the time they laid down that growth zone. Hmm. It also gives them an idea of what kinds of food they're eating. You don't have a 
an array of prey like you would with a stomach content analysis, but you have a relative idea from the two stable isotopes at what trophic level they've been feeding. So that's one major tool that's been used more and more um, lately. Uh, a second thing that we learned that's kind of interesting, and we learned this maybe 15 years ago, we had looked at enough species of sharks and rays and of rockfishes to publish a paper that had in the title, Deep Dwellers Live Longer. Mm. So it looks as though this is true with rockfish, and it looks like it's true with some of the cartilaginous fishes too, like the Greenland shark that was recently published on. The deeper they live, the longer they live, and the slower they grow. And so this is true in, in the case of um, the rockfishes, the thorny heads, and the deeper dwelling yellow-eye rockfish, and so on. And it, it appears that it's the temperature, probably the darkness all the time, and the relative lack of food. Mm -hmm. They survive, but they don't grow as fast or they don't become as, as robust. So that's got fishery implications as well. And the main reason I say that is that the IUCN and other fishery management organizations are starting to realize that fisheries are moving farther offshore because mm -hmm. the nearshore fisheries they've been focusing on are dwindling or mm -hmm. in some cases depleted. So if you're starting to fish more for thorny heads or deep sea rat tail fishes um, or rat fishes, if that's true, then you need to know more about the life history of those deeper dwelling organisms. And as a matter of fact, at one stage, we were approached by some people at USC who are studying gerontology and they wanted us <laughs> to publish in their journal, which is what we did. The whole thing is that they wanted to know why we thought these deeper dwelling species lived longer. They wanted to know from the human perspective, what kind of traits they live in that maybe humans could live in. And I kept saying, well, you know, they can't live in the dark. They can't live in water that's five degrees centigrade. And they can't, <laughs> they can't go without food forever. So that's not going to work. So I didn't become a gerontologist, but it attracted them. And it was kind of interesting to do that. Yeah. Well, that's, in a way, they live longer because they live slower, right? That's, that, that is the take-home message, I think. Yeah. yeah. Does some of that relate to the Antarctic? Because I know the species down there are in extremely cold water sometimes, you know, just right at freezing practically. I would but assume, in salt water. I would assume so. Water. I would assume so, Bob, that Antarctic ice fish, for example, and that's where one of the Greenland sharks lives. They live in cold water, even though it's not extremely deep, but it's cold and they grow slowly. And actually, we were talking about lingcod a while ago. If you look at age and growth of lingcod from down south here, California versus up north, Oregon and Washington, they grow slower up there and they get bigger up there at the same yeah. age. So there's some phenomenon with temperature probably that's causing and there's a and there's gigantism also in the Antarctic too, which I don't know if it's related to the the slow growth, longer life, uh, you know, uh, whatever. Yeah, for fishes, I don't see any evidence of that yet. Yeah, yeah. But for invertebrates, I know when Jim Nybakken was alive, we talked about abyssal gigantism 
and we would see some amphipods and isopods that were taken in deep water trawls that were much larger than what we expected from seeing them in shallow water. And I, and I know M.B. Marshall's book on deep sea biology mentions that. So I think that's probably an observation that. Uh, yeah, I remember. I remember when I was at USC uh, doing a PhD with Olga Hartman. Uh, she had a huge museum of just polychaete worms and segmented worms, and she had some little scale, you know, the scale worms you find in yep. underneath muscles and so forth. Well, she had scale worms that were like a foot long. God. <laughs> you could look down their uh, gullet, you know, into their stomach. <laughs> They're huge. Perfect yeah. example. Yeah. 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 But I don't know of that for, for deep sea fishes that they get that much bigger. Right. I don't right. know. But they could live longer. They definitely live longer. There's no doubt yeah, about okay. that. Yeah, yeah. And grow slower. And that does have some important implications because, as you pointed out, the fisheries are tending to move offshore. Even here in California, the sport fishing, uh, next year's groundfish regulations are they're talking about opening deeper water up and trying wow. to push sport fishing further out into deeper water and it it seemed backward to me when i read it and it seems even more backward now there were some federal protected areas for uh rockfish trawling offshore years ago some years ago and i don't know what the situation currently is with that but it was they were depleted offshore and they were trying to bring some of those rockfish populations back that's true and i think there were a dozen species in that group the main yeah. one of which was the cow cod sebastes levis which has a huge but had a huge population off off the channel islands north of the channel Islands. let's see that'd be south of the yeah. channel islands yeah um and they had a cow cod restricted zone that didn't allow anybody to fish there and the person that studied that was milton love the person right. we mentioned before from UC Santa Barbara. I understand since then that um, those populations seem to have been be doing better than they were before, probably because they were set aside. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they've removed the protection. That's that's in the field of fishery science, and I just mm -hmm. can't stand all the regulations, so I've avoided it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a nightmare. Yeah. Well, we are, in fact, I think out of time for the uh, the Ecology Hour right now. Uh, and I want to thank you very much, Dr. Kaye, for sharing the, your uh, observations and history with us. It's uh, fascinating and an area, I think, of science that not a lot of people really know much about. So I think listeners probably got a pretty good takeaway. Thank you both. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Super. If you'd like to learn more about this subject or hear this interview again, go to our website, which is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.